Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. When I think of the journey we've taken together, y'all have been here for us more than we have for y'all. And God has been faithful in everything. I jokingly tell people all the time that God didn't, uh, not not God, but seminary didn't equip me to lead a church like this. <laughs> and uh, I would say probably maybe that's not true because we're still here. Uh, either because y'all haven't wised up yet or um, God's doing something here bigger than any of us. So whether you are here for, again, as I said earlier, for the every time the doors are open or you're new here, there's something special happening here, and it's not because of me, and it's not because of Donna. It's not because of these sweet people. It's because we try to serve the Lord where God has called us. And so instead of me continuing to dwell on this and get more emotional and blubber up here in front of y'all, I'm going to do what God's called me to do, what y'all expect me to do, and I'm going to preach. Is that all right? All right. So we are going to be looking, we are continuing to go through the book of Nehemiah, and I appreciate the feedback, many of you have said that you have enjoyed going through this book because uh, there is so much about rebuilding and commitment and and just about just life in general. And as as again, as, as we saw those photos earlier of our church and and in 10 years, we've seen a transition. I, I joke with people uh, all the time. It's not a joke, but it's a fact. We had uh, uh, Father's Day um, recognition when I first got here, we were looking for the youngest father, and the one or two youngest fathers of that day were actually gone. So the youngest father was Newt Partain at 61 years old. Remember that, Sherry? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so luckily, the, the age, is, we've got younger fathers here now. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we have seen some tremendous people of faith. Um, go on to be with the Lord, and I can't wait to see them again. But God is not done here. He's not finished with me. He's not finished with Donna. He's not finished with you. And so we've got a job to do. So as we look, we're in Nehemiah chapter 10, and we're looking at the rebuilding effort that Nehemiah was leading that requires personal commitment. You see, God was using Nehemiah to methodically rebuild the broken people of Israel. After hearing God's word and it was read publicly and, and they responded through confession and repentance, it was time to lock in this moment that they had, this moment of conviction, this moment of repentance. For those of you that remember youth groups or you remember revivals where people walk down front and people make great commitments to the Lord, but as soon as their feet hit the pavement, the commitment is gone because it was an emotional thing. It wasn't a commitment thing. And so Nehemiah knew that. And so we need to make sure that we are personally committing to what the Lord is doing in our lives. It was time for them to return to obeying the laws and commands that God had given Israel for so long before. And you know what? Commitment is a word that has lost its power today, isn't it? Nobody wants to commit to anything. Why is that? Well, probably because 
Many believers today, you may be there, and I've been there before when I've had issues of commitment, that, that our, our faith almost seems like a, a roller coaster of ups and downs as we depend on our circumstances to dictate our faith rather than our commitment to it. Because let's be honest, some days, did y'all enjoy the extra hour? I'm going to tell you, I enjoyed the extra hour. I was grateful for that extra hour this morning. But the thing is that sometimes we wake up, we don't go, Oh, good morning, good morning, good morning. I am so glad to be a believer. You know, sometimes we just get up and go, Oh, let's see what's hurting on my body today. Or, i got to get that coffee in me before I do anything. You know, we think about all these things. But the truth of the matter is, is that commitment shows our intent to follow through on what's in our hearts. It's all about the follow-through, and this applies to every area of our lives. So if you want to rebuild your faith, if you want to rebuild this church, it's not just about the words that we say. It's not just about our good intentions. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, the people have come to a place of decision, and now collectively the nation was going to do something about it by entering into what the Bible calls a covenant. So let's jump right into the scripture. Verses 1 through 27, we see the rebuilding takes leaders willing to make a real commitment. It takes leaders willing to make a real commitment. Now, it starts with, in verse 1, the document was ratified and sealed by the following names. And uh, I am not going to go through and read all those names. You can read them there. But I will no doubt that first of all, it started with the governor. The governor was Nehemiah. And then it started off with the priest. Back then, we did not have priests of the believer. It's God anointed men to be able to intercede between God and other people because that was the way they worshiped back then. Thankfully for Jesus Christ coming and dying for our sins, we no longer need a priest to intercede for us. We can have direct access to God. But there was the governor, there was the priest, and there were the Levites. They were the temple helpers. And then they had other leaders that joined in. And this this list here is a legal list bearing the official seal and containing a roster of 84 names arranged according to these categories that we just read of governor, leaders, Levites, priests, and so on. And so what's important about this covenant? They, they have had this come-to-Jesus experience, and so now they have the foresight to know we need to put it in writing. We need to, to make sure that we write down something so that we hold ourselves and other people can hold ourselves accountable for it. Now, just to give you a little bit of perspective, we have a document like that in our history. I don't know if they still teach about it anymore or how they teach it, but there's a document called the Declaration of Independence. You ever heard of the Declaration of Independence? That was a document that was created by the Continental Congress of July 4th, 1776, which basically it, it spoke of and it, it gave record of we, we were separating from Great Britain and we were becoming the United States of America. We were declaring our independence. And no matter what people say, 
and have rewrote history. And the truth is the reason they left Great Britain, the reason they left that is because they wanted to come to America and worship God as they chose. And so it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to go do this. But here we see 56 delegates for the Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence. And most of them that signed it were in favor of it. Without this document, without these men signing on the dotted line, we would not be here today. And I got news for you, you wouldn't have off work on July 4th. You wouldn't be able to do fireworks, boys. That would have been bad, right? Because it would have just kind of went by the wayside. So the thing is, is that without that document, the United States would not be here today. And like today, if they would have written a strongly worded tweet, <laughs> or they said, I'm going to let somebody know behind my keyboard. I'm going to let them know what I really think. But we call them keyboard warriors. You know, I'm going to join the revolution. Hashtag. That's doing something. It's really not. It's just people typing hate online. And whether it be Facebook or Twitter or, or in your little... Um, Handwritten notes or your gossips, I mean, prayer circles and all these other things. I mean, you know, we, we all tend to, to spew different thoughts and things. But here in this point, I wonder what our ancestors are going to think if they pull out archived Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds and Instagram and TikTok. I wonder what they're going to... Preacher, what do you know about TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. I don't know about it, but I know about it. They thought, we have to do something about this. Being on a spiritual high was not enough. And here with the leaders, total of 84 in all, in Nehemiah, they were willing to put their names on the line for the covenant before God. And just as Nehemiah needed people to step up to do the physical work of rebuilding the walls, they needed people to step up and do the spiritual work as well. And so we see here next in verses 28 and 29 that some led and others followed. You ever heard the saying, we got too many chiefs and not enough Indians? I don't know if you can say that today. But the meaning of it was is that there's too many people trying to tell you what to do and not enough people just doing it. Some led and others followed. It's been pretty exciting to see during this place, um, a place in life and ministry survey assessment that we've been doing that God has kind of orchestrated the church right now that God has called some and equipped them to lead and God has equipped other people to follow. It's pretty amazing. And so we see, starting in verse 28, then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who had had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God, separated themselves. That's, that's worth underlining or, or noting or putting right here on the post of your mind as long as it works. So it says, They separated from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God, together with their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and all the people who were old enough to understand. They joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his 
servant Moses. I don't think it's going to be like the Christmas story where they triple dog dared each other. But I do know this. I know that they committed themselves to say it's not enough to say we're going to do it. We're going on record. And it says they solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands and regulations and decrees of the Lord. These are people at the time, they didn't have the whole Old Testament and New Testament, but they had the Old Testament writings. And they said, of these Old Testament writings, we are going to sign on the dotted line and say that we are going to do our very best to live according to God's word. I love it when it says here in verse 28, then the rest of the people. That's the New Living Translation. Then the rest of the people. It's no small fact that people will follow leaders, especially when they believe in where they're leading them to. So here we have a broken people that followed Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. Now they are following him and his leaders into rebuilding their spiritual relationships with God. Look, I know that we are in a, a campus that... That it back in the day was beautiful. It's still a beautiful campus. I still love walking into the sanctuary. But but we are an older church, and there are things all over the place that we could fix up and spruce up. And many of our people have been doing things on the side, just helping out here and there to bring up everything. But the truth of the matter is, is that it's important for us to have a a good physical presence where people come in they feel welcome but folks if we have the prettiest building in all of anderson county but our hearts are empty and our spiritual commitments are weak it does not matter and that's what nehemiah knew here and just as a child follows a parent's example or students learn from a teacher or coach we need people of faith who will step out and lead like they did in this passage and not wait for someone else to do it Every organization loses leaders eventually. The key people, or the key is people recognizing that and stepping up when they see that. You saw several pictures and you will see them here. I I remember uh, a week or two ago I was looking at some old pictures and it was the first senior adult Christmas breakfast that, that we had since we had been here. And I literally, my heart broke. To see the number of people that we have lost. And in that same moment, my heart was filled with hope. With the amount of people that God has brought into our church. And then my heart went back to this passage to see that that although we have kind of lost people and gained people, we still are at that point where we need people to lead. Our senior adults have led us to this point, and they continue to do what they can with what they've got. But it's been a beautiful thing to see the younger ones take the baton and start to run with it, just like they were doing here. But every organization loses leaders. Families, you see it when the, the matriarch or the patriarch pass away in a family, and I'm looking at the eyes of the people in the family, and they're seeing their loved one there in the casket, and it's during the funeral, and you see the children, you see the grandchildren, and you look at them and you say, look, they leave a legacy, but now it's up to you. Mama's gone. It's time for you to step up. Daddy's gone. It's time for you to step up. The glue that held this family together is gone. What are you going to do? People live. People die. The next in line steps up. The same is true with the church. 
The same is true with the church. When people pass, the others step up. And when those called to lead wait, the organization suffers. I used to joke with Miss Bobby. She would always tell me, she said, now preacher, what we need to do is this. Now I knew when she said we, I knew who that meant. Me. We need to do this. We need to, you're right, huh? Yeah. You remember. Tell the preacher what we need to do is it. And I knew that I'd be doing it. And hey, I love it. I'd give anything for her to boss me around. But she was a leader and she would make sure that things are being done. When those God is called to lead, when they wait, the organization suffers. When those God is called to lead, wait, again, the organization suffers. So, Here's what we saw here a moment earlier. Separation is required for commitment. Did you see in there in the scripture where it says that they separated themselves from them? How many stories of star athletes have we read about that they spent their teenage years or their childhood years training for a specific sport so when it came to the Olympics or it came to college or it came to professional sports, they were ready because they had been practicing all along. When it says here that they would separate themselves um, without getting too deep into the woods, what would happen is is that when a, a nation would conquer another nation, especially when a nation would conquer Jerusalem, they would intersperse the people of Jerusalem and the people of the conquering nation together so they would basically water down the beliefs. If you remember a guy named Solomon in the Old Testament, David's son, who was king, he prayed for wisdom and God used him great and mightily. But the problem was he loved women. He loved them a lot. He had 300 wives. I can't imagine that. That's like almost one a day. But then on top of that, Donna's like, you better watch yourself, son. I got the look. I got it. And then after the 300, there were 700 concubines, which means not wife, but similar duties. And so here he was. He had all these women. So what would happen is, is they weren't all, uh, they weren't all Jewish. Some of them they had come from different nations. He would go to, through the street or he would hear about a woman that was beautiful. Hey, she can come be in my, my, for lack of a better term, harem. And so these, these women would bring their gods. They would bring their, their idols, their false idols. And he would say, okay, you bring your baggage with you when it comes to worship. And we'll, I'll go ahead and make you a little corner over here. So what was happening is, is that his worship was being watered down because of the bad influence of other people. Now I've got to be very careful when when I when I'm kind of navigating through this because believers in Jesus, we must live the difference. We are not in this world, or we're not of this world, but we are in it. So how can we help others when we cannot help ourselves? Believers today who refuse to live godly lives and they don't feel any conviction over it, is because they do not make God's Word the authority in their lives. The reason you have drama in your life is that your Facebook feed is your source of authority, and not this. 
The reason that you are living drama in your life is because your bank account or your friends' impressions of you or all these other things are the sole authority in your life or, or what will people think of me? That's your authority instead of this. And don't worry, you're not the only one. Everybody has been guilty of that. The people of Israel have been guilty of that. And Nehemiah is trying to get him back. But I'll go ahead and I'll give you, you know, every, every, every week I try to give you a little something to think about. Uh, this little something I would like you to think about is that, let me ask you, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? And I would say, you know how you answer that? Look at your friends you hang around. You're looking in the mirror, folks. If you have a small group of dedicated friends, then you are blessed because you are that dedicated friend. Now, it's not 100%. There are times where we have people in our lives that God puts into our lives to be sandpaper. I understand that. But when you look at the people that you emulate, when you look at the people that you try to be like, what do they look like? Do you want a more fulfilling life? Do you want to separate yourself from the things and people that are holding you back? Do you want a better marriage? Do you want better kids? Then live the difference in front of them, my friends. Do you want this world to be a better place? Then we have to live the difference. You see, most people believe living differently among people who are far from God is uncomfortable or embarrassing. How costly would it be to know that you had the answer to hopelessness, but yet you failed to share it with them? In this passage, 84 people sealed a covenant and told everybody, we're signing on the dotted line, follow us. And this will be a way for you to understand. Now here we go. Three promises made to follow through on your commitment to God. I love it. He doesn't say, you just need to commit to God. He gives us three areas. And here we go. Buckle your pew belts. Number one, verse 30. We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagans of the land and not to let our sons marry their daughters. Of all the things he starts with, he says, don't let your babies marry people that are outside of our Jewish beliefs. This promise was addressed to parents. Because back in this culture... You didn't have courting. You didn't have, oh, she looks good. You didn't have uh, dating. You didn't have dating apps. Basically, mommy and daddy set it up and said, you're going to marry this kid. Whether they was ugly or not, it was arranged for you. And so he was telling the parents, do not have your children marry with people that are outside of your Christian faith. So the first provision was not to contract any mixed marriages. And let me say this as clear and as, as, as succinct as I can. When he was talking about people being misaligned in marriage and do not marry mixed, he was not talking about the color of their skin. In churches, in Southern Baptist churches especially, there is a long-standing tradition that your color stays with your color. That is not what this Bible passage is teaching. What it's teaching is, is that if you are a Christian and you say, well, they're not a Christian, but I love them and I'm going to try to reach them. 
and they end up taking you down, you've been warned not to do that. Or if, you know, I've seen it time and time again, a couple, they've dated, they haven't really, all they knew is they were in love, 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 and they get married, and everything's great, and then they decide they have children, and then they think, okay, we got to get these kids in church, where are we going to go? Uh, well, I was raised to believe this, and I was raised to believe that, and all of a sudden, they are in separate corners because they never took time to think about what do we believe in spiritually? You realize that these nations would intermarry with these Jewish folks to, to basically lead them into idolatry, to water down their faith. And so the Bible is telling here not to do that. You see, King Solomon, as I said earlier, had brought all these wicked, idolatrous ideas into his life and into the nation by marrying women who did not worship the Lord. The people now, by contrast, would honor God by obeying his commands. Look, I, I'm, not, I'm not naive here. I may be. You know, I, I take that back. There are times where I am naive. But I know this much. I know that every couple that has come through this church, that may be watching by way of Facebook, are not perfect. And there may be situations where one person is stronger in the faith than the other. That does not mean you say, well, preacher said we need to both be Southern Baptists, so if you're not Southern Baptist, we're going to get a divorce. That is not what this is saying. This is saying that, and I've seen it time and time again in premarital counseling and with couples, and I see it true in my own life, is that, I need to be the healthiest person I can be with the Lord before I start worrying about trying to change somebody else because I cannot change anybody else. I am only responsible for my responses. And so what happens is, is when marriages and relationships get in trouble, you look at the other person, oh, if only you would, and whatever. Or then, then you get the, well, you're not doing this, so I don't feel loved. And then pretty soon that feeling goes from, I don't feel love, to let me find somebody else that will love me. Never ever seeing the fact that all these other things have come into your relationship and never seeing the fact that it's all about what you want and you have forgotten to think about what God wants. I tell people all the time, the best thing you can do is take a time out and you work on yourself and your relationship with God. You get strong in your relationship. Then I tell the other person, you work on your relationship with God, and then that way as you're getting closer to God, and they're getting closer to God, you will be getting closer to one another. When you take God out of the center of any relationship, it suffers. And that's what they're trying to show here. Because any marriage or relationship that does not place God at the center of it, will struggle with commitment. Again, that's the purpose of what they're here for. They are committing. They didn't just have a Jesus meeting and say, oh, we're going to sign this document and everything's going to be great. They said, we're going to sign this document and here are three things that we need to look out for. Number one was this one. In your marriage or relationships, what are you committed to working towards? That's a fair question, right? Have you ever sat down with your spouse or your relationship 
or your partner or whoever and say, look, what are we really committed towards? What, what are we, are we working together towards something? Or are you working towards your thing and I'm working towards my thing and maybe we'll meet up someday? How many couples do we have to see that they spend their whole lives trying to raise their children when the children get old enough to know and understand, they decide, well, we don't love each other anymore and we're going to go our own ways because they spend all of their time trying to make the commitment to the children and other things and not to their relationships. There was no commitment to one another. There was no commitment to God. There was a commitment to a schedule. There was a commitment to a school. There was a commitment to a habit. There was a commitment to a way of life. There was a a commitment to a round of payments that we have to make every month. Those are the commitments. All the while, where is our commitment to the Lord? Kids leave the house, folks. If, if your kids are your main commitment, one day the kids will leave the house. Money comes and goes. Jobs change. Our health deteriorates. So where do you put your emphasis in on your relationships? God knows when you are pulled away from Him by the shininess of other things. If you are not making God the center of your life, if you are not committing to him you are hurting yourselves and you're hurting those around you god says be committed to him first and your family second and if you're not on the same page in your commitment to god change that for the sake of you and your relationships if you're in a relationship if you are married if you have relationship with family members and y'all are not on the same page look you can't make somebody believe But you can let them know that your commitment to Christ is a serious deal and make that a priority. Second thing, be committed to your business dealings. We talked about this the other week. Remember the blue laws? They were known as the Sunday laws, which meant that you basically couldn't have any fun after church forever. Back Way back in the day, they didn't open up uh, department stores. They didn't open up grocery stores. You were lucky to find a gas station that could get, have a gallon of milk. They didn't, oh, and check this out. They didn't even open restaurants. I know you, oh my goodness. But under the Old Testament law, I don't know if you knew this, is that God said that no one should buy or sell anything on the Sabbath day, and they totally disregarded In fact, well, God's just no fun. I want to have fun. I want to go out and... And do whatever I don't have time to do the rest of the week. But God knew, even as he spent one day to rest, he knew that for us it would be good to take a moment to unplug and to focus on resting in him and getting reconnected with him. That's why he started this. But while there is fact that some people make money in ways that are contrary to the way God's word supports it, why do restaurants stay open on Sunday? Because we go eat at them. Don't, don't, please, please don't be that person that talks about, oh, I just went to church and you talk to your server and ask them if you, you know, can pray for them and all that kind of stuff and you leave the message table and no tip. Well, if you don't tip well, don't tell them you came from Holman Park Baptist Church. Make up another church. <laughs> all joking aside, I mean, I mean, really, that, if you've ever been a server, uh, you know that, that that can be pretty comical. 
So anyway, let me move on. Uh, there will be, there will always be a quicker way of getting things done at the expense of our commitment. There's always going to be a shortcut. There's always going to be a, I'll do that later kind of thing. But there will always be a time where we, right now, what, preacher, you don't understand. I need the money. Okay. Preacher, you don't understand. My kid needs a scholarship. Preacher, you don't understand. We got this. Preacher, you don't understand. You're right. I don't understand. But I do know what God's word says. If God is not the middle of your commitment, then everything else suffers. I see that in my life as well. I'm not telling you to get down on you. I'm telling you as a friend who has learned this. The third thing, (laughs) hold on to your pocketbook. Be committed in supporting God's work. Y'all know me. I don't preach about money all the time. I'm not a money preacher. I'm not a prosperity preacher. I don't believe if you give dollars, God will bless it with a thousand. I, I, I know this. Whatever you give from the heart, God knows, and he will bless what you give, and he will bless you. But here we go. I, I Just like I tell you, when these things come up, it's like golf. I play it where the ball lies. And here we go. It says in verse 32, In addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver, or some translations say a, a one-third of a shekel, for the care of the temple of our God. This will provide for the bread of the presence, the regular grain, the offerings and the burnt offerings, for the offerings of the Sabbath, the new moon celebrations, the annual festivals, and the holy offerings, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel. It will provide for everything necessary for the work of the temple of God. So what they see here is that they committed to God in how they made their money, but also how they spent it. Now, some of you came in here this morning and you said, oh boy, it feels good in here. Some of you came in and said, why is it always cold in here, preacher? I tell Donna, she's going to be the one when she gets to heaven. God, could you turn it up just a little bit? But you know what? There are people meeting on dirt floors in hot buildings. There are people meeting in mud huts. There are people meeting in the grass on a blanket somewhere. They don't have this comfort. We've been going through a a budgeting process. We are are continuing to, to prepare the budget for next year. And it's amazing what costs what to do what we do. It takes money, doesn't it? And it says here in verse 34... We have cast sacred lots to determine when, at regular times each year, the families of the priests, the Levites, and the common people should bring wood to God's temple to be burned on the altar of the Lord our God, as written in the law. Maybe we could say, and the Lord shall bring candy for no trunks, no trees, right? But we promised, here you go, verse 35, we promised to bring the first part, or some translations say, first fruits of every harvest to the Lord's temple year after year, whether it be crop from the soil or from our fruit trees. Now, back then, that was their income. That's where they made their money. That would be no different than you say, God saying to you today, I'm going to give you the first part of our paycheck. Verse 36, We agree to give God our oldest sons and firstborns of all the herds and flocks as prescribed in the law, We will present them to the priest who minister in the temple of our God. Here's the thing about first fruits. It's very risky to give God your first fruits because back in that day, what if your land didn't produce the crop that you wanted it to? 
What if the livestock didn't, didn't multiply like you thought it would? God promised to bless the giving of his first fruits and firstborn to serve in the church in faith. And now I'm going to meddle just for a minute as we hopefully will be rounding the corner here. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, even as a pastor, there's a time in my life, not as a pastor, but earlier, there's times in my life and Donald's life to where tithing was not, I would say, biblical. It was we gave God, as Odell Williams used to say, preacher, did we get tips today or tithes today? I used to tip God. And some people tip God. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not going to sit down with you and ask you to see your bank statements and tell you how much to give. We're not going to do that. I am going to tell you this, is that I know the difference between when I would give God out of what I had left over as opposed to giving God the first fruits. How does that work? That means that when you get your paycheck each week, 10% automatically comes off. When we, when Don and I get our tithe ready on Sunday mornings, we'll say, okay, what well, money came in this week? Do we need to do this? Do we need that? 10%, period. Because that's the first fruits. But what if, what if gas prices go back up? What if the Republicans get in office? What if the Democrats stay in office? What if there's an oil shortage? What if a bomb falls on us? What if there's an, look, I understand we can what if to death. But let me ask you something. Do you want God's first fruits blessings for your life? Or do you want his leftovers? Again, it's about commitment. And it goes on in verses 37 and 38, talking about the tithes and how they will process them. People say, well, where do you get 10% from? Verse 38, a priest, a descendant of Aaron, will be the Levites as they receive the tithes. And a tenth of all that is collected as tithes will be delivered by the Levites to the temple of our God and placed in storerooms. The people and the Levites must leave or bring these offerings of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms and place them in sacred containers near the ministering priest, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Then it says, we promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. The Bible says, Plainly, we need to be givers to the house of God. Now, I've talked to Christians. I've talked to them, and I've had some of them say many things, but some of them have said, well, I don't believe in tithing. Okay, don't believe in it. That's fine. I remember a dear friend of mine, when he was much younger in his faith, he would say, preacher, I I tithe, but I do it the way I want it. If somebody needs help, I will help them. If, I, if there's a special need around it, I'll give to that. That's not tithing, that's gifting. Tithing is saying, this is the first fruits of what God has blessed me with, and God, you do it, and you deal with it however you need to use it. And then that comes back on the church of wherever you're going to be good stewards and to represent and to use whatever that is for God's glory because you won't be held accountable to that held accountable to that. I will be held accountable to that. When we give it to God, it is a spiritual act of worship. Why is that? We're doing what he asked us to do. Isn't it great when you ask your children or your grandchildren to do something and they just do it? Does that ever happen? (laughs) Maybe one day it will. But when they do do that, they may be wanting a toy or a a screen or some, some kind of 
ice cream, I don't know, whatever it might be. But they're like, hey, I'm going to be good. So whatever you want, Mom, whatever you want, Dad, I'm going to do it. Doesn't it feel good to just know that they're going to do that? Yeah, God feels the same way when we give to Him. We're supporting His work. We set our heart right with the respective of money. Here it is. Here's the whole thing. If, if I were to, to boil down tithing in just a simple statement. Tithing allows us to not let the things we own own us. Because, my friend, if you see every bit of money that you come in, that comes into your life as from God, and you give God his 10%, you're going to find a, a word that you've never, or not never, but you rarely can find in today's culture. And that is a word that starts with a C, and it's called contentment. All of a sudden, you don't need the latest iPhone. You don't need the the extra labels on your clothes. You don't need the extra um, whatever it may be because you are content with what God has given you. This is what the Lord says, or the Bible says, the Lord says about honoring him with our wealth. It says in Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. I will tell you now, when you commit to God in your marriage, when you commit to God in your business dealings, when you commit to God in supporting the church, you will never miss out. He will bless you like you've never seen before. If you hold on to your money so tightly that you will not be a giver, then you have revealed where your heart is with God. So if you're struggling with the thought of giving, talk to those who are and hear their stories. Ask them to share how God has provided them throughout the process and how God has blessed them in ways that they can't put on a balance sheet. God promises he will never owe us anything. And you realize you cannot outgive God. You're never going to give to God your tithes and offering, and He's going to owe you something. <laughs> he always blesses us more. And we must step out in obedience and give in order to access the blessings God has for us. So, in wrapping up, discover the power of commitment. My friends, God committed to you by giving His Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for your sins. While you were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for your sins. Is it unreasonable that he is committed to us in that way? Is it unreasonable that he wants us to commit back to him? These people in Nehemiah's day, they're getting serious with God. And I pray that we could do the same. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, this is just a time of of invitation if there's... Someone here that would say, you know, I've let other things get into my life and, and other things have become more important. But I realized today after the reading of your word that I need to return to you. I need to commit myself to you. I need to change some things in my life, Lord. I need to separate from them some things and gravitate towards other things. If that is you, then my friend, I just want to pray with you. Whether it be up here or whether it be afterwards or over coffee or wherever it may be. Maybe someone wants to join this church. Maybe they just want to make sure before they leave today that they are a Christian, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of their soul.
Maybe someone wants to get baptized. I don't know. The, the time is yours, God. If you'd like to make a commitment to him in front of these people, I know it seems scary, but there is no one in here that would not rejoice for whatever decision God makes in your life. Would you please stand for our hymn of invitation?